Living Desert Tour, een wonderwereld vol leven vir jou oopknoop. Gaan op een Living Desert Tour en beleef een woestijnparadijs van leven. Of gaan op een gewilde nightwalk en beleef een wonderwereld van nachtleven in die woestijn. Dit is een belevenis in Swakopmund wat jij niet moet misloop nie. Hierdie deel van die kustlijn is ook een van die meest gezochte plekken ter wereld om voorlewe te bestudeer, met een van die grootste kormorantkolonies en vele ander gezochte hoogtepunte. Met groot wild, woestijndierkies, insekte, voels en geschiedenis, knobet is birding een wereld oop wat jy vinnig sal liefkryk. Al drie hierdie unieke toere vertrek direct vanaf Atlantic Villa. Besoek hulle webtuiste en bespreek vandag nog jou plek by Atlantic Villa. AtlanticVilla.com Well, welcome in, folks. This is Chris once again with Indaba Africa. Sorry about the hiccups there. Just rookie mistakes uh, once again. Uh, my apologies for that. Uh, I think Sean says it sounded like an acid trip. <laughs> I'm not so sure it was an acid trip. It might have been sounding like that scorpion scurrying across the desert there outside the Atlantic Villa from Swakopmund. A lot of folks tuning in now. Hey, thanks. Some of my regular subscribers appreciate it. Some other folks have come over from, uh, obviously, from Willem's uh, channel. So thank you all for joining us today. My guest today on Indaba Africa is Willem Petzer, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, his experiences. And uh, hello to everybody that's joining in there. I'm not going to be able to say hi to everybody because there's quite a few people. But what I'm going to do, oh, Christopher Ambassador. Well, thank you so much, Rudolph. <laughs> that's kind of you. I guess that's uh, to replace Lana Marks. <laughs> Anyway, so listen, today, a special uh, feature today, I was, uh, I was able to reach uh, Willem Petzer, and he agreed to come on my stream. And uh, for those of you who tune in his channel, I was just on his channel a couple of hours ago. It was a very interesting time. So with that, I'm going to bring Willem in, and uh, I understand that um, you should be there now. Can you uh, can you hear me, uh, Willem? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Thank you very much for having me on your stream. No, it's brilliant. Hey, that's a nice smile. I like that smile. In the midst of Wuhan coronavirus, COVID-19, it's always nice to see people uh, with a decent smile on their face, despite the trying circumstances. So, Willem, um, I first uh, became aware of you. Uh, actually, you're the first uh, South Africa politics-focused YouTuber that I ever became aware of. And I think you actually just came on about two or three years ago. Is that correct? Uh, well, it was two years ago when I made a video because I was just like, I was I was really angry at that stage of, about the fall murders and the fact that uh, these things are taking place and our government are pretending like nothing's wrong with this country. And I just decided maybe I, I had, I've got the talent to speak and I've got the um, confidence to speak. I, <clears throat> I never struggled with any confidence, so maybe I should... Uh, start a channel and speak about these things because if i'm not going to speak about it who is and that that was what my uh, idea was back then and then i made that first video about farm murders and um i made a few videos about the mainstream media in south africa um and how they uh how they manipulate and twist the truth and um that was about my first five videos and then I didn't expect many people to watch it, to be honest, and um, the next thing I knew it, I was viral, and thousands of people were subscribing to my channel, and suddenly I was someone, and all these other YouTubers like Ronaldo, who has been going for like 12 years now, invited me to come debate on their channels and so on, and uh, suddenly I was bursted into the public sphere in South Africa. Well, ind indeed you were. In fact, saw uh, you uh, written about in the popular press, the newspapers and media, a lot of attention around you when you mm. uh, stormed on the scene there. 
Well, like I said, I didn't really pay much attention to YouTube videos uh, before I actually came across your video. Quite by accident, when I was out exercising, you know, my, my phone popped up and uh, YouTube, I must have pushed it and, and it had it on there because I have interest for Southern Africa. So it's kind of cool, actually. Um, and I, I really hadn't followed you that much, although I did follow some of the news stories. Um, but uh, it was fascinating to see you on there. One of the things I found interesting is that you seem to be a very strong advocate for Afrikaans culture and Afrikaans language and um, also for rural farmers and the rural security situation. Am I accurate in that description or am I off there? No, I think that, that could be an accurate description. I would say that I've uh, fought many causes on my channel and on my own. Um, one of those causes would be far murders. I've been very vocal about them and I've endured a lot of attacks. Uh, another cause that I have is like the squatter camps that I'm trying to reach out to right now, especially during this coronavirus lockdown, which hits them especially hard. And then of course, Afrikaans language and cultural issues uh, where the language of Afrikaans are being um, vilified and explicitly forbidden at universities and schools and so forth. I've been against that as well, and I've been trying to advocate for the language as well. So um, I would say all of those things are quite true as well. No, it, it is quite interesting. You know, from outside of South Africa, when you think of South Africa and you think of Afrikaans and education, your retention goes to Stellenbosch. You think that's the premier Afrikaans medium university. But as I understand, that's not even the medium language of instruction there anymore for many of the coursework. Mm. Much of it's done in English now. Isn't that correct? Yeah, all of it's in English now. They've completely, completely removed Afrikaans from the university there. And they've done it from all of the universities. They were, uh, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 14 universities in the country where which was Afrikaans as its first language and as its uh, medium of education. And uh, over the course of the last three decades, they have removed every single one of them and ma made every single one of them into a... Uh, English University and in some other places they have combined the Afrikaans University with the English University in the area. Uh, um, an example of this would be the University of Johannesburg, which is actually a, 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 quite a few universities, quite a few Afrikaans universities that were joined into one university that became one big English university. So uh, all, the, all the old Afrikaans universities were basically now taken over. The only one that still has Afrikaans as a medium of instruction is the University of Potsdam, but uh, they are fighting very hard to, to remove it there as well. It's interesting because, of course, Afrikaans is one of the 11 official languages of South Africa, but you wouldn't get that uh, perception from the outside if you look at events there, particularly with the removal from the language of the medium language for teaching in schools and universities. But one thing I would say from the outside is that I've seen kind of a, uh, a sparking or sparkling of popular Afrikaans culture, particularly when it comes to music. The number of Afrikaans performers has exploded, and a lot of them are doing quite well in South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, and abroad as well. Uh, do you listen to any Afrikaans music before we get any of the hard questions? Of course, yes, I do. And I think um, we can actually talk about that as well from a cultural perspective. Uh, I think people get more ethnocentric the more they are under threat. And I think because Afrikaans and Afrikaner people are under a huge threat at this stage in South Africa, and everyone just wants to 
uh, you know, try and destroy our culture and our language and everything because of that huge threat that we are under. Things like Afrikaans music and especially you you can say nationalistic Afrikaans music like Bok van Blerk and some of the things that Steve Hofmeyer does are exploding into the scene. And I think it's just a, a natural reaction uh, or an instinctive reaction of the of the collective when it's under such a big threat to turn towards a more um, cultural cu cultural centric view or more national centric view within your own people and instead of just looking at the broader spectrum of everyone that is in South Africa. Well, I certainly understand where you're coming from there. It's interesting for me though, and, and I get why people would say Book von Blerick is um, is nationalist or you know defending culture, but. You know, of course, his uh, big attention that got him initially was uh, Delare. Uh, that's a huge song, and it was heard around the world, not just in South Africa. But mm. when I listened to Delare, and maybe that's because I know history, I, I didn't go, oh, you know, the Afrikaans people under assault. Um, that's part of the motivation. I understand why I did it. But to me, it was harkening back to the Boer War and the conflict between the Brits and between the Afrikaners, the Boers, between the Orange Free State and the Transvaal and the Brits trying to take over those republics and what happened there. I mean, he, he, he talks about the cockies. I mean, that's what they call the British troops. Um, to me, that was, it was nationalistic, I suppose, but an awful lot of, of uh, black nationalists in South Africa took that as some kind of call to arms against black nationalism. And, and I just scratched my head. I said, are you listening to it? Are you watching the video that he eventually produced on this? To me, it, it, it wasn't about Afrikaners circle, make a lager, circle the wagons and defend yourself. Mm. It was more about Afrikaner pride. Did, did, did I miss the boat on that one or does that sound right? I think you missed off of the song. Um, firstly, well, De La Rey is probably one of the, the most mild songs that he has put out. Um, things like Afrikaner art and... Uh, Ons for South Africa and some of the other songs that he made were much more explicitly nationalistic. Yeah. But um, the thing about De La Rey, and that was his first hit, is it's not just about the history. He is drawing a parallel between the events of the history and what's happening today. If you if you listen to the, the, the chorus, it says, De La Rey, come lead us again. Mm -hmm. And it's it's in present tense. It's not in past tense. It's 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 uh, um, so the the actual deeper meaning behind the song is more of a of a meaning of we need someone to De La Rey to come lead us again because we need a leader now because we are on a huge threat and I think everyone who is Afrikaans and who is living in South Africa understood that song in that way. Um, it wasn't a call to arms or a call to violence or action or anything of that sort. I think it's more a call, a call to a cultural leader. Mm. But of course, the, the ANC exploit the, the situation around the song to create the narrative of uh, fear within their voters. Because fear-mongering uh, fear against the, the Bura is something that the ANC uses every election all the time. Like the last election, Cyril Ramaphosa said, Everyone has to vote ANC because if they don't vote ANC, the Buddha will come and they will conquer you again. And this is a, this this is literally what he said. Yeah, he said he told them the Buddha will come back and they will conquer you. And if you don't vote ANC, the ANC is the only the only ones that can protect you from the Buddha. And if we if we're not there, the it's you and the Buddha, and the Buddha is going to for the Buddha is going to obliterate you. So that's the propaganda of fear that the ANC uses all the time. And I think they just use that song and the fact that that song became so exceptionally popular as more of that fear mongering propaganda. 
Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Bok van Blerk, uh, as well as a number of other artists, including folks like Snotkop. Uh, but uh, Bok van Blerk, a couple of songs really uh, hit home with me. Um, Tide um te trek, uh, that's one that's amazing. I love that song, the video that goes along with it. And then when mm. he sings uh, Afrikaner Sing, I, I, I don't know if that's uh, Afrikaner Heart or if that's another song where where there's uh, white and, and colored South Africans who are singing in Afrikaans. It's a brilliant video. Yeah, the one tight on the track is probably one of his uh, most explicitly uh, um, political videos because, as you can see, it's a it's a white family on a farm, and then they, there's this bunch of black terrorists attacking them with with uh, a bit a bit unrealistically aggressive weapons and AK-47s, and you you have whatnot. And um, then they tr they flee from their farm. So that one is exceptionally political. It's much more political than De La Rea, I would say. But, uh, yeah. Well, for me, it, uh, it actually, uh, it, I understand where it's coming from, what he, what he wrote about. But the footage and the melody, it reminds me of other places in Africa where this similar sort of thing has happened, where NGO workers and or of people course. living in these countries have to flee and evacuate and what happens. So it just kind of reminded me that it's very inspirational. I'm sure that the EFF um, was triggered by that video. <laughs> well, as you said, it's very true. It's happening all over all over the African continent. You think you go there and you're going to do some some good and you're going to help the people. You're going to be a doctor, for example. I know a person who, who, who dedicated his life to be a missionary doctor in um, one of the um, rural homelands in in uh, northwest um, with the Tswana people, and he was brutally murdered there. And he's not alone. I think, um, and these murders don't don't just involve him being murdered and maybe stuff being stolen. Most of them involve the person being tied to some pole and then tortured for hours on, on end and then they they um they finally die of uh, of pain usually and this is this is what happens over and over and over again but if you talk about these things and if you tell people that these things are happening not just in south africa but all over africa but specifically and especially in south africa then they they uh, do their utmost best to make you seem like some liar or some propagandist because it's absolutely taboo to just speak the the truth about what's happening no absolutely um, i have a story about the farm murders um from personal experience not having experienced it but an event when i went to south africa in 2000 i'll get to that in a little bit but Back to the music very quickly, and then I want to ask a little bit about you personally, if you don't mind. But uh, on music, um, is that an Energate? Uh, yes, that is. It's, a, it's an Energate, yeah. I'm dying for those. I miss that. That and Biltong is what I miss the most. <laughs> yeah, I've got some, I've got some Biltong or Dry Horse here as well, if you want to check it out. Nah, I'll pass on the horse, but I, but the bill tongue I take. But um, so for folks who are new to my channel tuning in, listen, just uh, just mention this very quickly. If you look on the screen there, you'll see a, a banner for the lockdown concert live stream that took place on May 8th from Giselle. She's an Afrikaans singer from Hootfontein in Namibia who grew up there and also uh, grew up in the Northern Cape. And so a lot of people who tuned in for the concert said, she's got a funny accent. Is she from Namibia? Indeed, she is. Uh, she lives in Pretoria now. And uh, her manager and I spoke, and they uh, asked if they could live stream her album debut, which she was supposed to go on tour for this, but the COVID-19 put an end to that. So they went ahead and debuted the album, Fitlin Spencer, and it was on my channel. So you can look on our past live streams. She sings folk music, or what I would say in German, or Heimatlieder, 
uh, folk music, country music, which I'm not a big fan of, but she's quite good. She sings in English and Afrikaans and country. And then she does Afrikaans pop. So you should check her out on my stream or just go find her on Facebook or on the Internet. Anyway, so that's up there. Um, now, she's, she's got an amazing and stirring song, Fils Mensa. She sings about Afrikaans, Ditalis and Uns Blood. It's, it's an amazing song. You guys should check it out. But I just wanted to mention that very quickly since I got that banner up there to explain why it's there. So on the farm murders, before I get to that, let me ask you this, um, Willem. So I, what's your background? I mean, are, are you a farmer? Are you an IT guy? Are you a cardiac surgeon? What is it you do for a living or what did you, uh, what have you grown up to do? What's your avocation? Well, when I, I, I always had family on the farm and so on. And um, so I, I grew up on, on, on more than one farm as, as we've been there in all, on all of my holidays and so on and so forth. But um, I grew up in the city. And then after matric, I studied veterinary medicine. Oh. And um, then I started studying theology in 2019. So um, because I thought that my that it would be better, or that it would be better suited for my calling to have a uh, have a uh, what do you call it an oplating? Let me just get the English word. Have an education in, in theology because I, I think that corresponds well to my to my calling for my people in South Africa. Um, so I'm studying part-time theology and then part-time I'm doing this YouTube channel and social media and stuff. And then also I'm busy writing a book. Um, if you translate the title to English, the book's name would be uh, Way to Now Africana or it would be like the Latin word Quavadis. And um, Inside that book, I lay out a plan for Afrikaners to survive South Africa, and the only way that we can actually survive in South Africa with the harsh um, antagonism that are being perpetuated against us. So, so that's what I'm busy with now, and uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing at the moment. That's that's uh, the, the second option that you said is more to to give me a, a psychological and a philosophical and a theological uh, understanding of the of the people around me and of the sociological situation in South Africa and of group dynamics and so forth. And I think theology is probably the, the most the best suited, especially if you want to study uh, the sociology and anthropology of the Afrikaner nation, you need to have a very, very good understanding of Reformed theology. And um, that's why I decided to study Reformed theology, because with that Reformed theology, you can understand who the Afrikaner is as a nation, as a culture. Um, because if you don't understand the, the Afrikaner's theology, you will never understand who the Afrikaner is. And uh, it is probably the most important part of the Afrikaner culture. Well, I, you know, it's uh, I, I think that um, uh, Dutch Calvinism plays such a strong role in the creation of the Afrikaner, Afrikaner identity uh, for the Boers and then eventually Afrikaners. Uh, so I, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Are you finding mm -hmm. it to be helpful so far, your studies in it? You say it's part-time you're studying. Yes, yes, definitely. Like, for example, I'm studying a professor called Hengstwerker right now. He lived... Um, 
just over 100 years ago, he lived through the Boer Wars and uh, he wrote his philosophy on who the Afrikaner is after the Boer Wars. And that was his big, his big uh, contribution to the intellectual realm of Afrikaans. And uh, I think he's probably the best philosopher that the Afrikaner has ever had. And he captures the soul of the Afrikaner nation so well. And um, these things definitely helped me with my, with my own studies and with my own research and writing this book for the Afrikaner as a way to cope with what's going on around us. Um, that I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't find any other, um, any other field of study to do the, anything in that, in that sense. But my, my other studies, my veterinary medicine studies, involved a lot of, you know, animal health. And it also involved, like, uh, pasture studies and uh, uh, nutritional studies and all of that things. So it, it puts me in a situation where I've got the knowledge to be able to, to, to debate anyone who debates me on the, on the land question and on people who want to take away your farms and your land um, by asking him the simple questions, whether he has the knowledge to do anything with it. And because I actually do have the knowledge to know how you grow grow uh, crops and how to um, look after livestock and so on, it's very easy for me to, to in a debate, prove to someone like that that uh, it's not that easy to be a farmer and uh, you need a lot more knowledge and um, than you than you would think you'd need to to do that. So yeah. No, it's interesting because here in the U.S., uh, famously during our presidential campaign in the Democratic primary, Michael Bloomberg was running as a Democrat, although he'd been a member of the Republican Party. And he was uh, he was caught on video, not caught. He, he gave a presentation in Europe a few years ago and he was interviewed and he uh, dissed farmers in a major way talking about, well, I can teach anyone to be a farmer. You just plant a seed and it grows. You put water on it. Um, myself, I was also a farmer. I was a dairy farmer when I was in high school. Uh, we had Jerseys and Guernseys and Holstein. And also, of course, the horses, chickens, ducks, turkeys, rabbits, and, you know, some garden uh, farming along with that. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, I've always had a great deal of respect for the farming community. That's one reason I have an interest in it. And I agree with you. It takes an awful lot to be a successful farmer. You have to be an agronomist. You have to be a climatologist. You have to know about science. You have to know about irrigation, power systems. It's a whole list of things. It's not simply, here's a piece of land, go grow something. And I find that discussion to be quite disingenuous and, um, and irritating when people make it overly simple how hard it is to do agriculture. Does, that, does it affect you in the same way? You feel the same way? Definitely, because the, the biggest argument that we hear here in South Africa, you know, the fact that we have about 30,000 white farmers, commercial farmers in South Africa, and they basically feed the whole nation. We have less than 1,000 big commercial black farmers here. So it's very insignificant, but then people always make this argument that, you know, it's because they are racist and there are racist systems in place that there are so many white farmers because these white farmers are, they just, you know, sit in there inside their truck and give out orders and then the black people do the actual farming. Mm. And um, then they make this argument like, yo, there are so many black people that have worked uh, for 20 years on a farm. How can you say that he's not able to farm? And then it's it's just so so juvenile to make that argument and so so exceptionally stupid because if I picked oranges for twenty years or if I you know fixed wire for twenty years or whatever does that qualify me in soil science in botany in um, like veterinary medicine in uh, 
zoology, in all of the knowledge that you need to to actually farm. I mean, you, you can't just you can't just have a bunch of animals and let them walk around and eat grass and not be able to know what the grass is and what species of grass it is and what what the nutritional value of every species is and if it eats this amount of the, of this species, how long can you keep it on this piece of land until you need to move it to another one and rotate your your grazing and all of that. Um, and it's the same for someone who's who's, a, who's like a, a, a crop farmer. You need to have exceptional uh, knowledge of soil science, of fertilizers, of poisons, of different strains of um, crops to plant and which strain will work in which area. You have to know about the climate. You have to know when the rain will come. All of that stuff. Just picking the oranges won't give you that knowledge and it won't be able to make you a farmer. I think people who studied for six years to to become a farmer at university and they have all of this knowledge, they still are not equipped to be a farmer. They still need to work for at least five to ten years under someone who knows how to farm before they can start farming on their own. And this is a guy who studied all of the sciences for many, many years at university. And now you get this argument that anyone who can who can pick oranges can farm. No, absolutely. I think it's very disingenuous. I mean, uh, when you're in a farming community, farming culture, you grow up with it. Here in the U.S., we have things like 4-H, which is a series of clubs in rural communities about farming and also animal husbandry and things like that. But in our high schools, we have the Future Farmers of America, FFA, which is a club that people get in who are becoming farmers. And then most of our farmers go to university here in the U.S. these days. I mean, you go to university, get some sort of degree that is applicable for becoming a farmer. I would argue that for most farmers in the 21st century doing modern farming, it's a vocation, not a vocation, a profession. It's it's almost white collar in some respects. You're you're tilling the soil, but you have to have the skills that white collar people have in order to be successful. That of it, course, yes, yeah. yeah. So, Especially you know, if you oh, if you want more than holistic farming, you need you need to have very good knowledge of chemistry and so forth. So, yeah. Well, there's sorry, a couple I comments here. Uh, Christoph Havanga, who gave a super chat on your program, so I'm going to mention his comment because I, I don't have super chat on here enabled. He says uh, it's the same as a clerk claiming to be the CEO of any company. And Jack Sparrow, I guess that's uh, the guy from the uh, pirate movie. There is tilling crops do not make you a farmer, just a laborer. And by the same token, for a comparison, it makes sense for me. Being an infantryman doesn't mean you're qualified to be the chief, the joint chiefs of staff head as a four-star general. Just because you served 30 years in the Army doesn't mean you're qualified to do every job the Army has. So I think those are apt mm. comparisons. Yeah, that's that's a very good point you make with the Army because there are many people who spent 30 years in the Army and never rank up to anything significant. And uh, then you just, you just have to admit that not everyone has the the ability to ever rank up. Not everyone not everyone can be taught to be a general. It's just one or two people or three or four people that you will know in your entire life who's got the who's got it in him to become a general in the army. And um, that's the that's the big problem with the ideology that we are sitting here with this ideology of e equality. Because um this ideology says that no matter who you are and no matter what special uh, gifts the Lord gave you when you were born, you should be able to become that general. And um, it's patently different from the Christian worldview where you say, where you thank God that, you know, I've got the IQ to become a general, I'm not going to be a troop for the rest of my life. And as I said, maybe five in five in a, in a million people can, can actually say that. 
No, I agree with you. You know, it's uh, the problem is that, and we have this here in America going on too. We've seen it in Europe over the past 20 years or so as the European Union developed. We see a situation where it's a question of the ANC is trying to achieve equality of outcomes as opposed to folks who are focused on equality of opportunity. If everyone has an equal and fair opportunity to apply their God-given talents, their hard work, their perseverance, their ingenuity, that's a different situation than simply trying to make all of us dumb, poor, and starving, which seems to be the objective of leftists and progressives the world over. I think we probably agree on that one. I think the problem is it goes much deeper than that because you say it's equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity. But if you look at this ideologues, especially the leftist ideologues on the odd left, they would argue that if there is total, um, if there is total equality of opportunity, then the outcome for everyone will be exactly the same. And if there isn't an equality of outcome, then it is a sign that there is no equality of opportunity because they, they, cannot, they cannot ever uh, admit to the fact that some people are just born with more in them than other people are born with. And some people are just born with the ability to become something much greater. Um, the great German poet uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said that uh, we love, we love young girls for who they are, but we love young boys for who they promise to become. And it just illustrates this point to you that an individual, even when he's only a young boy, a little boy who's running around playing with his toys, he already shows promise to become something great, or he doesn't. And the fact is that thousands of, thousands of people don't, while one out of that thousands of people actually do show the promise to become something great. And that's something that you can't ever fit into the ideology of socialism or communism. Right. Well, the point I'm making is not that I don't know, I don't buy the leftist or progressive argument that that's truly about equality of outcomes. Mm -hmm. But that's 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 the, the theology they create for themselves, because there's no such thing as equality of outcomes. It doesn't work that way in the real world. That's not the nature of human beings. So I don't agree with that. I'm just saying that it's it's a it's a, a direct opposition for those who mm. look at equality of opportunity so that everyone gets a fair chance. I mean, ostensibly, the horror of apartheid was that people were treated unfairly and unequally and that needed to be corrected. Well, apartheid is gone. The system is in place. Uh, people should be able to make equal fairness opportunity, but we see it going quite the opposite direction. Well, let me ask you this question. Mm. So you, you said that you study veterinary medicine. My mother wanted me to be a vet. We had a horse and her eyelid um, got caught on a nail. We had a home fire and we moved to another place and I was told to go in and clean this old barn out, a paddock where she would stay at night. And um, I couldn't see because it wasn't lit and I missed the nail. Uh, it was hanging off. And so there was a lightning storm. She was frightening and she cut her eyelid. And if you know about horses, that's just bone under there. There's nothing to stitch it back to. So the vet came out. And my mother was all excited for me to become a vet. And that's a very lucrative profession here in America. You make a lot of money as, vet, as a vet. Anyway, um, the vet came out and, uh, and I looked at it and I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, we're going to take care of it. And uh, he, he, took, he took out a scalpel and he cut her eyelid off. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? Aren't you going to stitch it back? He goes, to what? And that was the end of my interest in being a vet. So do you actually practice veterinary medicine? And, 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 and if you do, how is that? No, no, I never practiced veterinary medicine. I only studied, so, but I, I never, I never finished all the um, things that you have to do in order to become a full qualified vet. Yeah, um, I never did practicals or any of that. I just did some uh, theoretical studies. But um, uh, during my studies as a vet, I already felt the calling to become a one can almost say a leader within my community, and. Um, 
I don't think that as a vet would be the, the right way to do it because a vet is a bit of a very individualistic profession where you are basically, you work on your own for your whole life and you just see a person when he's got a problem with his animal, you fix the problem and you leave and that's the end of it. Well, I want to be something that's more um, involved in the bigger picture, holistically speaking, in society. No, that makes sense. Uh, some nice compliments to you here on this side. Um, uh, my Afrikaans isn't brilliant there, but Psych Doc, I think, said something very nice complimenting you there, Villain. But um, so when we talk about land, of course, what's often overlooked about land is that much of the land that people want um, who don't have land is usually for residential property. They want to build a house in an urban area or something like that. But this has turned into a farm argument. There is legitimate uh, issues about farmland and restitution, some of which has been dealt with in the last 20 years, but a lot of it has not necessarily been dealt with in an effective fashion by the ANC. And they haven't really supported mm -hmm. it. I think uh, I might have mentioned in your stream, I know I mentioned before that, you know, they give 16 or they give um, – $4 billion this year to ESCOM to save it, and they spend $35 million for land purchases. That's just insane. That's not serious. But 87% um, of the land in South Africa is not even arable. Yes, you can use it for grazing in many places, but 87% is not even arable. So we're not even talking about a lot of land. It's not well watered. So it's a real challenge here when you talk about farmland. But um, it's, it's, I think it's always a disingenuous argument when people start talking about the land as if it's all just sitting there vacant, unused, and available for people. And... What do you think? I mean, is, is that off the mark or, or am I missing something? That's 100% that's correct. And the, the fact is that they always bring up this argument that I think only 12% of the, the land was ever given to black people. But if you go look at the areas where, um, where black people were actually, you know, uh, given these lands, let me just quickly pull up a map here so I can show the audience. Um, if, you, if you look at, let me just get this. So people can see what I what I'm doing. All right. So uh, I think if I do this, it'll pop up there by your side. Yeah. Um, but in any case, so let's let's move this to satellite view because I always find it's very it's much easier to explain it to people if they look at the map like this. So this is a map of South Africa, and if you look at this, the, only this green part here, which goes through here. And this little part right here is the arable part of South Africa where it rains enough. Basically, everyone, everything to the east of, uh, I mean, to the west of it is desert. You, you can see from this brown area right here, this is desert and this um, oh, they yellow can't, they, is green. They can't color. see the map, Willem. They can't see the map. I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how to get in. My apologies. Um, oh, oh. coming through. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought I thought that if I share the screen with you, they would see no, it. But in any case, I, I, I can probably make my my uh, my point by just explaining it yeah. and by explaining it if, if you look at the, the whole western part of south africa that whole western part of south africa is basically desert or semi-desert and it's only this this little piece on the east and on the east coast um that's very good agricultural arable land and if you look at the the map of if someone wants to put it up the map of uh, the the homelands the black homelands you will see that all of these black homelands fall into the area that is actually good arable, farmable soil, especially places like the Sky is built on um, the most uh, the most fertile soil on, in the South African country. So that argument is really stupid because they say that they couldn't become farmers because they didn't have the land, but they actually had the majority of arable farmland 
in all the places that actually all look, um, you know, rich enough and uh, uh, which, what's the word? Let me just get it. Um, fertile enough. The soil is fertile. Yeah, fertile, fertile enough to actually form. So um, that argument is a bit of a fallacy in that way. No, absolutely. Well, also, you know, the, the whole thing, uh, I don't know if we're going to get into it here, but because that would take a lot of time, but uh, we've broached on the topic. But the whole the whole discussion about land is disingenuous because at CODESA, the Convention for Democratic South Africa, all parties agreed on what I consider a reasonable point in time, 1910, because there was no South Africa before that. It was a collection of British colonies, African kingdoms, and independent Boer states like the Free State, Natalia briefly, and of course, uh, the Transvaal. So there was no South Africa before that. It was just a geographic location. So the Union of South Africa Act by the British Parliament creates in 1910. So everybody agreed in 93, 94, 92 that there would be no land claims prior to that. And that's reasonable. Otherwise, you're the Palestinians claiming that, you know, the Jews don't belong in Israel, but they were there 5,000 years ago. So who came first? And as I tell a lot of people, if we want to play this game, then everybody except the Khoi and San can footsec and get out of South Africa because you all came after the Khoi and San. They were there before the Europeans or the Bantus. But yeah. As well, so exactly. And if you... If you take that argument a little bit further, the, the South African government is so very, very proud of the fact that the so-called cradle of humankind is in South Africa. So this means that everyone originated in South Africa, so everyone has a claim to this country. So that argument is exceptionally stupid. Of course it is stupid. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one that I make all the time. I wrote an article two years ago about uh, land and poverty in South Africa. It's on LinkedIn free if anybody wants to look it up, in which I put forward an argument about that how people being disingenuous when they talk about white monopoly capital and about land distribution and the dates. You know, uh, hearing this nonsense about Jan van Riebeck stole my land. No, he didn't steal your land. You weren't alive then unless you have an amazingly long lifespan. He didn't take your land. Anyway. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, not to get down that rabbit hole because it's quite a, a direction we can go. But back to the farm murders because I know that's something that it is a very uh, a topic very near and dear to your heart. So for me, you know, in 2000, I took a trip to South Africa and I traveled all over the country on this particular trip. And on the way there, I was reading the Wall Street Journal on my flight from Europe to South Africa to, jo to Joburg. And there was an article in there talking about this heartbreaking story about a Norwegian retiree who had moved to South Africa and had bought a disused farmstead in KwaZulu-Natal. And he bought it and brought it back. He was like 68 years old when he got there a retiree from Norway with his wife. He got the farm working, he hired about 30 Zulus to work on the farm, paid their wages every week. And he would go into town to the bank and collect the money and pay them on the weekend. Well, a couple of his farm workers, I know this is a story you've heard a thousand times in other farms, but a couple of farm workers decided they wanted the money. So they hired a couple of Tutsi or thugs from Joburg to come down and they broke in the house and they uh, locked his wife up in the pantry, not realizing there was a window she could escape out of. They pistol whipped this 68, 69-year-old man, beat him to death in his kitchen trying to get the wages, and they got the wages, and then he just tortured him. She got out the window, crawled through the thorn bushes to the next farmstead a few kilometers away, and then called for help. The point of the story is that he's not South African. He came there. He bought disused land. No one was tilling it. No one was working it. He put people to work, paid their wages, and some gangsters and thugs wanted some money. So they tortured him as if they had some vendetta against him. And murdered him. And these are the stories that disturb me. Now, here's the piece of the story. It's not fascinating, but really unusual. I do research on ethnic Germans. And of course, there's a lot of ethnic Germans uh, in South Africa to this day. And they make a big part of the Afrikaans community. So I went to Rourke's Drift and then Isan Lawanda to view the, the sites. When I was at Rourke's Drift, I happened to mention that I speak German fluently. And the, the person there said, well, have you gone to Elanskran? And I said, no. 
Uh, why? He said, well, there's a German Lutheran church there. I said, really? And I just assumed it was one that was built 150 years ago and it was in disrepair or something like that. So I went to Isan Luana and I looped around and came back and went to Elenskrad. I know there's more than one Elenskrad in South Africa, but this one's in KZN. So I went there and um, I saw this stone German Lutheran church in the German style built right down the middle of a ridgeline. So I pulled up to it thinking, wow. And I got out, I parked the car and I walked around in the cemetery because I'll walk through cemeteries for things just to see. And I assumed I'd see, you know, some German tombstones from 1860 or something like that. No, this was August of 2000. And there was a fresh grave. Someone had just passed away and it was all in German. I'm like, what? So I'm walking around and someone calls out to me in Afrikaans. And of course, my Afrikaans was not particularly good. I understand it, but didn't speak it well. So I use my most famous phrase, which is, <laughs> so uh, anyway, so the guy called me over and, um, and he started speaking to me in English. And then uh, we started talking. He was a German Lutheran pastor there, an Afrikaans speaker. His first language is German, fourth generation German in South Africa, second language Afrikaans or English, third language Afrikaans, fourth language is Zulu. He also spoke Zulu. And he was telling me that that, that Norwegian was one of his churchgoers who had passed away. Uh, it's a really wow. sad story. It's just, and you can repeat this repeatedly throughout South Africa. In 94, there were 68,000 commercial farmers in South Africa. Today, you might have 32,000. A lot of reasons for it. I think it's probably less right now because yeah. that uh, number of 32,000 is also almost eight years old. So eight yeah. years has gone by. I think it can be closer to 20 now. Well, that's a pretty shocking statistic, quite a, quite a decline in the number of farmers. There's a lot of reasons for it, but the thing that's always bothered me, and, and maybe you can share a little bit about this. Um, so with Offer Forum, um, one of the things I was always curious about, and maybe they're doing this now because I haven't paying close attention to Offer Forum of late, but I always thought that the issue needed to be couched in these terms. It's an issue of rural security, not of farm murders. Farm murders is part of it. That's a huge part of it, but it's beyond that. Farm workers get murdered by these thugs. Um, we see them come on property from video footage where they have walkie-talkies and they have night vision goggles and they have, you know, advanced weaponry. These are not just people looking for revenge or just trying to rob the local farmer. Some cases that is the case, but there seems to be a lot more going on in some of these instances. Is this? Yeah, we even see some people who can block cell phone and radio signals with the equipment that they have. And um, you said, you, you mentioned the story where they went, were after the wages, but Adam Zeroos from Afri Forum once made a statement, and um, he said that it's only like, it's only a, a roughly 70% of farm murders where anything was stolen, and uh, I mean, it's where nothing was stolen, and then only 30% where something was stolen. So 70% of the times, nothing's even stolen, the people are just tortured for hours, and then they left and nothing is stolen. I think the fact that if you go into the house and you don't even loot it, you don't even steal anything, you just go and you you torture the people there to death, it's to send a very clear message that um, you are not here to steal because you, you specifically send, send that message because it's so easy just to, if you want something, just to take it. If there's something nice in the house that you want, you can just take it. Mm -hmm. um, so they're sending a very clear message with these attacks. No, I think that's definitely part of it. it. But the thing that disturbs me is that it seems like the ANC has done all the things they possibly can to reduce security in the rural areas. Uh, when I was working at a, at a particular government agency, I wrote frequently about the, the idea to disband the commandos. And I projected that this would have a very negative result on rural security 
and that uh, also drug trafficking would, would skyrocket. Imagine what I was right. <laughs> the, 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 the removal of 168 commando units had a detrimental effect. And of course, the ANC couched that in terms of, you know, it's historical, it's a race-based sort of thing. But of course, that looked past reality that the most recent four commandos had been activated were in KZN and they were entirely black uh, commando units. And they were actually the only form of formal employment for most of the members when they came and did the reserve duty to do coordinate search operations, looking for Daga, Mandrax, and also responding to farm break-ins and things like that. Very, very disheartening to see it. But I've seen everything I've seen in the past 26 years seems to be that the ANC has been reducing the presence of law enforcement and rural law and order. I just want to say, uh, Chris, people are complaining about the echo from my side, but that's probably because you use your own speakers. You don't use headphones. Um, maybe you should just put some headphones in because uh, it, it will reduce the echo. It will take the echo away, actually. Sorry for saying that. No, that's quite all right. Okay, why don't you talk for a second about what I just said, and I'll grab my earphones and see if it makes a difference, okay? Okay, just, just put your sound off so the echo can stop. But yeah, in any case, so what you were talking about, um, where were we, I think, uh, oh, um, I see username here says military grade jamming equipment, and I, I actually wanted to mention that earlier is that um, some photos and videos came out of people who uh, had these military grade equipment, that's actually, um, it's, it's, it's illegal to have it in South Africa, I know in America it's legal to have uh, cell phone signal jammers, um, it's just not legal to use it, but you may have it. But in South Africa, it's illegal to have them. But the ones that they had, it, they were so big that uh, one person can't carry the whole jammer. So this was one of those massive signal jammers that can jam signals in a radius or something like 40 kilometers. And they had that with them on the farm. And they, so the people can't call for help. They can't uh, let anyone know that there's an attack on their farm. And... Um, if you have that sort of military equipment, then it just tell you, it just brings up some questions like where did you get it, and uh, who supplied it to you, and why. And that's uh, that's it. No, absolutely. So is this better? Can uh, can you still hear me, Willem? Yes, perfectly. Okay, yeah, I, I can hear a lot better now too. Hopefully the echo is gone. Although I still see comments coming up. I think that was from the delay. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I'm um, sure it should be done now. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, absolutely. Um, that's uh, people acquiring things they shouldn't have um, is really um, a, a disturbing question. But to me, the, the, the issue of rural security, having been a farmer and knowing how far you are isolated from law enforcement. I mean, we have counties in America where the sheriff is two and a half hour drive from, from a farm. Mm. And so this is an issue that's important here. And we do see some rural crime that takes place and farm attacks. But of course, we have the Second Amendment. And uh, most of our farmers are well-armed, and so we defend our farms <laughs> against, uh, I know that many South African farmers are well-armed too, but um, this is a very difficult situation when you're isolated like that. Wouldn't you agree? Well, many people make this argument that the only reason why farm murders are so prevalent is because they are easy targets, and um, it's easier to commit crime in the rural area than in the city, but I find this 100% false. Uh, firstly, um, if you commit a crime in a city, it's 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 not it, it's very easy to get away and uh, to to just disappear into into the masses in a city, but you can't just disappear in a rural area when when you committed a crime and the people are are after you. It's almost impossible for you uh, if you are 
two and a half hours drive from any city or any town to disappear. And the other thing is, I always tell people who says that, you know, it's only a rural problem and it will happen in any rural problem, um, then they should, they should uh, compare crime statistics in South Africa to crime statistics in rural Wyoming, for example. And um, I actually did this in one of my statistics videos where I compared it, and there are towns in Wyoming that spans over hundreds of thousands of acres the farming land where there hasn't been a single crime being committed for the last 10 years. While in South Africa, farm murders is a thing that happens all the time. Almost every day you, you see an attack that happens. So uh, these things these things are, are impossible to look past if you actually start comparing these two. Uh, a couple things real quick to, to move from that just a second here. So um, who was this? From Africa. He said, uh, referring to my Afrikaans, he said that I speak Afrikaans better than many members of parliament in South Africa. That might be a true statement. I <laughs> uh, thought that was entertaining. And then um, he also asked a question about why the bull. So let me divert from where, excuse me a second, I got a scam caller calling on my mobile here. Get rid of that. Uh, so uh, why the Bulls jersey? Well, this is out of respect uh, for my guest, uh, who's from the, from the Hauteng, from Pretoria area there. Uh, so I'm wearing a Blue Bulls jersey. Uh, for those who watch my stream, uh, just uh, my thing is uh, whenever I do a stream or I do a prepared video, certainly what I do is I have a rugby jersey up and usually a rugby scarf. If you look behind me, you'll see that on this side, this is South Africa versus New Zealand, the dreaded All Blacks from Yokohama, a game that I was present at and deeply disappointed in the outcome. But it doesn't matter because we walked away with the trophy at the end, so that's fine. We got the web else. On the other side is the Bull. Whoops, where am I at? This side. Oh, here you go. The bull, wait, wrong side, there we go. <laughs> Here's the Bulls. Um, I'm not a Bulls fan, although at times I've enjoyed them in the past, particularly when Victor Matfield and others were playing there. I'm a Western Province Stormers supporter, for those who don't know, and I'm a massive rugby fan. I've been to the Rugby World Cup, the last six of them, I think. 2011, New Zealand, 2014 for the women in Paris, 2015, England, 2017 for Ireland for the women, 2018 the Sevens World Cup in San Francisco, and 2019 Japan. So I'm a huge rugby fan, and um, the Springboks are my favorite team. Anyway, but I'm wearing the Bulls because my guest is from the, the area. And I've been to Loftus many times. In fact, I bought this at Loftus, this jersey. So that's what that. I'm not going to wear a Lions jersey. Somebody asked if, if they could get me a Cheetahs jersey. I'll wear it if you get it because Billy LaRue used to play for them. He's one of my favorite players. But... Um, Anyway, um, if somebody could get me a Greek was, uh, shirt, I'd love that. Those are hard to come by. Anyway, um, and then um, somebody, uh, there's a lot of, I'm sorry. Anyway, yeah, so, <laughs> all right, so, yeah, off of that. So I just want to get, get those few comments in there very quickly. Um, so what really, what drives you these days, Willem? I mean, what's, what gets you excited? I mean, I've seen a couple of your recent videos. Maybe we can talk about those before we close out. I saw the one on the Bianca story about the, the young girl as a young kid doing tweets and how that was blown up. And then the other one I saw was uh, the squatter camp story about the disgusting performance by a pretend journalist from SABC um, attacking someone for living in a squatter camp and accusing him of being mm -hmm. racially isolated. And my thought was, I'm sorry, are you angry because this elderly poor gentleman lives in a camp where mostly old age poor white pensioners live and they're not integrated? So. You would prefer that black people live there and be poor too? Is that what you want? <laughs> no, I think let's let's start with the whole Bianca incident. So she was a uh, contestant for Miss South Africa, and when she was like fourteen years old, she had she obviously went through a phase where she thought it was very 
cool to be to speak in this ghetto speak, you know, this Nicki Minaj, Kanye West type of speak. And she had this uh, lot of tweets where she made jokes in ghetto language in which she, she used that Reddit N-word of yours. And, um, well, not, not as in a racial way, but in a, you know, I'm a cool hip-hop fan girl type of way. And this, these things happened like seven years ago, and now someone has um, pulled them up again, and she's basically destroyed her career as a model in South Africa. And uh, I, I just thought that this points to two things. Firstly, maybe you should teach your daughters it's not cool to be a gangster rapper, yeah. and she shouldn't go out and pretend like she's some gangster rapper all the time, and because this is the outcome of it. And on the other hand, it just shows you how people are willfully. Um, willing to to uh, misunderstand something that someone said just in order to hurt them as much as possible and um, the other the other topics that I talked about was these white squatter camps and I, I had to go there because they were being discriminated against because of this um, during the the lockdown when in, when they didn't receive any food parcels and I just thought by myself I, I all the least I can do is um buy a bucky load full of food and take it to them and maybe that will inspire some other people to do the same because these people really need food now they, they don't have an income usually they they are craftsmen and they make stuff which they sell which is their income but now they can't sell any of it so they have zero income and um that's the reason why i made these videos just to inspire other people and to show them what's going on and to inspire them sorry to go to these white squatter camps as well and maybe if you have a thousand rands or two thousand or three thousand rands laying around which you can use to help your people um go to the store buy some foods uh, some food and just drop it off there so uh yeah that's that's what the last week or so was about no well that that whole video i mean just it's just the, the lunacy of the questions of the pseudo journalist and he's not a journalist he's just a, he's a talking head who's taking his talking points from someone asking the most inane question you know these people live in abject poverty in a squatter camp and you're angry because other people don't live there with them in a squatter camp <laughs> i mean if they lived in a gated community and they were turning people away from coming to their community that's a different story we're talking about people in abject poverty. It just really disturbed me. So I really appreciate that you took the time to make that video and to point out the hypocrisy of what was going on um, because uh, it gets to people outside the country, and I think people need to be aware of this. It's just ridiculous. So now you talk about giving charitable donations, but what we've seen in the past several weeks under this draconian lockdown that the ANC has imposed with no rationale behind it at this point, the science doesn't support the actions they've taken. What we've seen is ordinary South African citizens and Christians in particular who are going out of the goodness of their heart trying to help others who are less fortunate, and they're being arrested and harassed by the police and by the military. Have you come across that anywhere, or are you aware of that happening? Um, I'm sorry, you got out for a second. I'm aware of what happening. So what I said is that, um, as you mentioned now, um, giving charitable donations to help the less fortunate in this yeah. lockdown. We've seen lots of reports, and I've gotten information from South Africans that I know about people being arrested and, and, and food parcels being confiscated so that only the government is handing them out and so that people can't be charitable and give food to help those who are less fortunate. Have you come across that? I think the first thing that we need to speak about is the fact that uh, the government has passed a law 
in which they state that in order for you to be able to to give out any food parcels, you have to register with them, and you have to get a permit to do it, and you have to, um, what do you call it, you have to uh, declare all of the parcels that you are handing out, and they are enforcing that law, and then there's a lot of videos and social media posts and so on, where people claim that they have been arrested for giving out food parcels or for taking food parcels. Um, none of it can be confirmed and the government is denying it at every turn. So I don't think it's possible for us to, to be able to definitely confirm this. But um, yeah, that's, uh, that's about what, as much as we know about that specific situation. The photograph I've placed on there is from Johan Orton. He's a photojournalist from South Africa who uh, does sports, uh, rugby and cricket and such. Um, this is uh, from uh, donations that were done just in the past week uh, in South Africa in the high veld, taking food out, uh, food parcels donated by people. So I would guess uh, that this would have been violation of the law that the ANC has put in place, or at least the regulation. But nonetheless, I know that uh, from my personal experience, uh, people that I know and trust that I consider to be reliable sources, that a lot of people really trying to help out people who are less fortunate of all groups in South Africa, but this government position that only the government can provide this is just absolutely bizarre. It doesn't pass the common sense test. I don't really understand why they're doing it unless it's simply to control things. I'm, I'm absolutely sure it's a racial issue because um, I know of a lot of people who have been giving out food to, to black squatter camps and so on, and you haven't heard a peep from them uh, of any trouble that was going on, but there are just a flood of posts all over so social media of people who were trying to do the exact same thing at white squatter camps, and these are the people who complain that their food is being confiscated by the police, and some of the people who take uh, food parcels were even arrested and uh, kept in the cells, and uh, these videos come out, and uh, I have spoken about some of them on my channel all the time, but um, I haven't seen a single one from someone who's doing charity work in a black area who said this. All right, thank you. No, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the, the chat here. Someone keeps coming and saying I'm dodging the question. I'm not dodging any question. I'm not sure. I don't dodge any questions. I'll answer any question anybody has. So uh, whatever that question was, bring it back in the chat and maybe we'll discuss it there. But So um, let's see. So, Willem, um, do you think that... Um, that there's enough attention being paid outside of South Africa. I think I know the answer to this. Outside South Africa, to what's actually happening in South Africa when it comes to minorities in particular. Um, I think I, I don't know. It's 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 difficult for me to say because from individuals outside, I hear a lot of praise and people saying that they that they uh, you know support what I'm doing and so on. But if you look at anything official from governments and so on, then there's nothing yet except for one uh, guy from the Dutch parliament who, who, who was able to pass a bill against expropriation and farmers. But except for this one Dutch parliamentarian, I, I haven't found anything official from, from outside. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, the question was from someone called Europe Rising asking me if I'm a white nationalist. Well, that's just utter nonsense. Where would you get such, such a question like that from? What in anything I've said or questions I've asked or comments I've made with Willem in the last hour would give anybody the impression I'm a white nationalist? In fact, on his stream earlier, I made this specific point for folks that um, when I talk about South Africa, I'm not talking about Afrikaners. I'm not talking about English speakers. I'm not talking about coloreds. I'm not talking about Venda, Zulu, Costa. I'm talking about all South Africans. 
you know, one of the things in South Africa for me, Willem, is whenever I'm there, and I've been there many, many times, of course, I lived in Habarone, so it was a short trip for me over mm. to Pretoria, uh, one of the reasons why I'm so fond of it, or to Rustenburg. But anytime I'm in South Africa, I talk to white South Africans, and I'm talking about race and the problems and the issues around race. And what do white South Africans do when they're in a restaurant or out somewhere? Shh, you can't talk about that. So I hang out with black South Africans, and I do the same thing. Shh, you can't talk about that. And I tell people, I said, listen, if you want to resolve differences and, and discover if there actually are differences between people, the only way to do it is through discourse. you got to talk about these issues. And, of course, for me, it's a similar situation in the States. A lot of people will talk about race around their own folks and friends, but they won't talk with others, with the other. And so I'm always for that. So to he see somebody put, I think somebody's trolling on here asking if I'm a white nationalist. Where does that come from? Because I look like... I look like I've got some, you know, divinity beard or something. I have no idea what that's all about, but definitely not the case. Not a white nationalist. Um, I would not have supported and defended my constitution, which offers free and equal rights to everyone if I was a white nationalist. But anyway, so Willem, I know that you've probably got to take off here shortly, so um, I don't want to keep you over, over time. Um, but uh, anything you'd like to add or maybe something that I neglected to ask? We did find out that you're not a practicing vet, which was, I think, important to know. <laughs> no, that's. I think we've. I've. I've said. Well, I've answered all your questions. I think there's a lot more that we can talk about, uh, but uh, I think we can. We can call it quits here and maybe talk about other subjects on another stream. But thank you for having me on your channel, Chris. No, I appreciate it so much. By by, donkey, uh, Willem, it was a pleasure having you on. Um, having, as I said, you were the first uh, South African YouTuber I actually caught my attention a couple years ago. So it's actually kind of interesting to have you on my channel now that I have one up and going. Ladies and gentlemen, um, this has, I think, been an interesting discussion. Um, if you missed it earlier, go to Willem, uh, Willem's channel, and you'll see our stream from earlier when we talked for about an hour. And now he interviewed me there, and I've had a chance to interview him here. So my audience is not just South African. It's also people in Europe and around the world and in the U.S. So hopefully they've learned a little bit about Willem Petzer and what he's about and what he's trying to do in South Africa for South Africans and for the country as a whole. And I hope that those who came over from his channel enjoyed this stream. Please remember that, um, feel free to subscribe to the channel. Um, you can um, go ahead, Willem, I'm gonna move you off the screen, so, but I still got your, your, your voice actors hanging there. So please feel free to subscribe <coughs> to the channel by pushing that, that uh, like, or excuse me, subscription button right down there. Leave comments, if you agree or disagree, or if you wanna debate me, go ahead and leave a comment when the video is posted and uh, I'll answer all of them. But uh, if it's positive or negative, that's fine. I don't expect everybody to agree with me, that's perfectly fine. Uh, we can engage in reasonable discourse and you can prove me wrong or we can agree. Anyway, um, also I ask that you smash the like button because likes drive viewership. The more likes the video gets, the more preponderance of viewers will turn up because it appears on channels. And so with that, I'd like to thank my guest today, Willem Petzer, uh, who agreed to come on short notice and it was a real pleasure to have him on. And um, I'll bring him back on the screen so he can say farewell and then we'll drop off here right afterwards. You're back on the screen there, Willem. Sorry, I was just eating. Thank you very much, uh, Chris, for the opportunity. And you have a great day, and uh, goodbye, and God bless you. Thank you so much, Willem. Uh, I guess I set you up with eating. My bad. I <laughs> won't do that to you next time. Anyway, mm. um, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to Indaba Africa. This is Chris. We'll catch you next time. Remember, tomorrow I have a live stream. My guest, special guest is Herman Roos, a tobacco farmer in South Africa. But it looks like there have been rains in the high veld, and he might not be my guest tomorrow. If that's the case, I'll try to get another guest on, and we'll uh, pick up the discussion on something of interest to people here and in Africa. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next time. Tune in, catch Villain Petzer's channel, and please catch my channel in Dab Africa at Chris Wyatt Africa. Have a pleasant evening.